Do you ever wish that the communication in your relationship were a little bit better? Well, there are lots of ways to improve your communication skills. However, not all of those ways are actually going to help you in your relationship. That's because many of the conventional ways that we're taught to improve our communication could actually create more disconnect with our partner when what we're trying to do is build connection and build intimacy, even when we're talking about challenging things. So I put together a free guide for you. It's called my top three relationship communication secrets. And these are three things that are easy to put into practice, but will have an enormous impact on your ability to stay connected with your partner while you talk about anything, the sweet things or the challenging things. To get the guide, all you have to do is visit neilsatin.com slash relate, and that's R-E-L-A-T-E, or you can text the word relate to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I will send you a link where you can download the free guide. It's three simple things that will have an enormous impact on the communication in your relationship. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. What do you do when your relationship has been rocked by infidelity? How do you come back into connection and trust with your partner? And if you're lucky enough to not have been through that, what do you do to ensure that your relationship won't be affected by infidelity? Those are a couple of the questions that we're going to be tackling in today's episode. Today's guest, we have a return visit from Michelle Weiner Davis, who is on back in episode 65 talking about divorce busting. And today, we're going to be talking specifically about the topic of infidelity, what to do to repair. Her new book, Healing from Infidelity, just came out and is full of practical advice for any couple going through this issue with chapters both for the partner who's been betrayed as well as the partner who's been unfaithful so that they can work together to rebuild their relationship. We're going to cover so much of what the book has to offer today, and I'm so excited to have Michelle back with us. As always, we will have a detailed show guide that you can download if you visit neilsatin.com slash busting2. That's the word busting, B-U-S-T-I-N-G, and then the number two. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. And uh, I will send you a link to download this show guide as well as the uh, show guides for all of the other Relationship Alive episodes. It's a privilege and an honor to have Michelle back with us on the show. Michelle Weiner Davis, thank you so much for coming back on Relationship Alive to talk with us about such an important topic. I'm delighted, Neil. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, it's my pleasure because I find your work to be not only inspiring, but also so practically 
action oriented that it's it's almost impossible to read a few paragraphs without having an idea of like oh yeah that's something that I would try or that's something that I ought to do or hopefully my partner will do that <laughs> so um so I I want to have guests here on the show that that really can offer that so that for everyone listening they uh, step away from listening to the episode and feel like, all right, I know exactly what my next step is or my next I'm, two I'm, steps. I'm really glad to hear you say that, Neil, because when I got trained and I used to go to workshops, conferences, or even in graduate school, um, so often whoever was doing the training was incredibly fascinating from a philosophical or theoretical standpoint, but my mind just kept going to, okay, what do I do when I get home? What do I do when I'm with a client? And so often I didn't really have the answers because theory is about theory. It's not about what, you know, what do you actually do? So I've made it my personal mission in my writing and in the training that I do for professionals that when they leave either having read the book or when they leave, you know, workshops that I do, that if they have a client later that evening, they'll know exactly what to do, you know, when they're talking to them. And people who have read the book, as you say, um, they'll say, oh, yeah, I know what I need to do when we're together. That's exactly my goal. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're getting that. Thank awesome. You. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. And one other thing that occurs to me that we should talk about briefly, um, infidelity is one of those situations where people often do kind of break down and overcome like whatever resistance they were having to getting help. Because, of course, we know so many people hold off to the to the 11th hour to actually seek outside help for their relationship. Um Infidelity, I think, is one of those things where people are like, all right, it's time for us to, to go see a therapist. And, and yet the choice of therapist is really crucial, particularly, um, in dealing with infidelity. I'm wondering if you can give our listeners a little bit of your guidelines on how to know whether someone is really going to truly support your relationship through, particularly through a tough time, like going through infidelity. Well, you know, I think you just asked a really, really important question. I think there are, you know, primarily two reasons that people aren't sure that they're going to make it after there's been infidelity. And one is shame. And I think part of that is because so many people have said to themselves that I'm, I'm, you know, it's till death do us part unless my spouse has an affair and then I'm out of here. And as you pointed out, Neil, you know, infidelity is rampant. And so, so many people are actually faced with that in their lives. And when they are, um, it's one thing to decide in advance that, you know, you're out of there. And it's another to really be confronted with, now I'm going to break up this marriage. And if I have kids, I'm going to break up this family. And so, a lot, most people, the research shows, actually do stay after infidelity. The, the, the sad part is that they, um, they give themselves such a hard time. They're so judgmental. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll feel weak. They'll feel like they're cowards. And I'm here to tell you that you're anything but if you decide to work through this issue. You're really, um, you're brave. It takes courage. You're a hero. You're not a coward. And, 
Along those lines, I think shame is one thing that keeps people from getting the help quickly um, because they are just embarrassed. They, they, this shouldn't have happened in their lives. And if it has happened, they should know how to deal with it. And I'm here to tell you that it is, it is a difficult process. And not only don't couples know how to um, make themselves feel better to get their marriage back on track. Here's the truth, and, I can, and I'm part of this, so I admit this openly. Most therapists don't receive concrete, specific training in how to help couples heal from infidelity when they're in graduate school. I was one of them. And so that's the very first thing that I would say, is that if you're going to go to a therapist, number one, make sure that that therapist has had a lot of experience in walking couples down the path of dealing with the pain and coming out the other side. And, and not only has had experience, um, because I don't think generic counseling skills really do the trick. Um, it's one thing to help people understand why the affair happened or to get them to openly you know, talk about their feelings, which I think many therapists are very skilled in doing. But this is a very specific problem, which requires very specific skills. And along those lines, and I think this is what you were suggesting, Neil, is that it helps to ask your therapist um, what percentage of the couples who come to you with this issue actually are able to, to mend their marriages. Now, even if the therapist doesn't have you know, hard data, just the way in which the therapist is going to respond to that will be very revealing. Um, I would say, um, I, you know, I do, you and I have talked about this before, Neil, that I do two-day intensives with couples. And I'd say about 85% of the people who come to my practice are dealing with this issue. And although not everybody makes it in terms of their marriage um, healing and um, deciding that they want to be together, you know, my, my clinical guess about the percentage of people who actually do decide to um, really do the hard work and make their marriage um, better than it had been before is probably something like 80%. And so that's my goal. It's my goal in all the writing that I've ever done. It's the, my goal in all the training that I've ever done of therapists or even of the general public is regardless of the problem that people are experiencing, I really do believe the vast majority of the times, if they have the tools and they have the dedication, they can work through it. And the other really positive part of all of this is so many couples have said that after they have confronted the issues in terms of what led to the infidelity, what needs strengthening in their marriage, um, and, and really rebuilding the trust, believe it or not, many, many couples have said that their marriage, their relationship is stronger than it was prior to the infidelity. Now, I don't recommend infidelity as a way of strengthening your marriage, um, but, you know, like all things in life, um, some, when we're handed uh, a crisis situation, you know, they always say, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And I think the same can be said of working through this very challenging process of healing from betrayal. Right. And, and you talk in the book about how 
people come to you and frequently they've experienced tremendous adversity or trauma in their lives that they've handled just fine until an infidelity occurs and then they experience that as a devastating pain or or loss and i'm wondering if you have some thoughts as to why that might be well i first want to give an example um you know i i really want people to know even though uh, i kind of consider myself an infidelity coach and i've had a lot of experience in helping couples be successful in mending their marriages that i i also say that healing from infidelity is not for sissies um, it's really, really hard work. My experience has been that when a person has been betrayed, again, so often, they're the same people who have said to themselves, this would never happen in my marriage. And it is so incredibly devastating to find out that the person you love, the person who you're supposedly the closest to, the person you've been trusting, the person you feel safe with has been having an affair with somebody else. It turns so many people's lives upside down. In fact, I would say that many of the people who've been betrayed in my practice exhibit um, post-traumatic stress uh, disorder symptoms very much uh, like, for example, they can't eat, they can't sleep, they're having flashbacks, they can't think, they can't function. They become depressed. They become anxious. And um, I, I, I think it really um, shakes the very foundation upon which marriage is based. And that's trusting the person you love. And I know, you know, for example, one of the most poignant cases that I've had not too long ago was a couple where the woman had experienced experienced intense losses in her life. She had lost four out of her five nuclear family members, her mother, her father, her sister, and her brother, either through illnesses or accidents. And that all happened within approximately a two-year period. Yet this woman had a sparkle in her eye. I could not believe how amazingly resilient she was. That was until she told me about the fact why they were there. And why they were there was because um, a few months prior to scheduling an appointment with me, um, she had discovered that her husband had been having an affair for several months. And what she said to me was that as soon as she found out that he had been cheating, that defined her life. That defined who she was as a person. And again, you know, imagine sitting there with this woman who is so resilient that I was thinking to myself, had that happened to me, I don't even know if I could be functioning. And yet she was. And despite that, the infidelity is what was crushing her, crushing her spirit. So this is no small thing that happens in people's lives. Um, and so many people, it takes a long time and a lot of work to try to wrap your brain around this very common question, which is, how could you have done this to me? How could you do this? How could this have happened in our lives? And then, of course, the other question, which is, 
how will I know that you're not going to do this again? And so grappling with those questions um, sets people into a tailspin, which really requires some concrete know-how, how to sort of calm oneself, calm each other, and then really begin the, the difficult challenge of rebuilding trust and connection in the relationship. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's it. And that's what we're here to talk about today. And, and I'm, I'm looking at the vast terrain in front of us. And I'm thinking that, you know, if you're listening to us and you're going through this, then we don't have to hammer the point anymore. You know, like, oh yeah, this is a big deal. And, and maybe you're, maybe you're feeling a little hopeless and you could feel hopeless whether you're, um, the person who stepped out of your relationship and and want want the healing to happen and just don't see a path to reconnection with your partner um or if you're the one who was betrayed and and you look at your partner and you're like I can't you know I want things to be better but I can't imagine what that would even look like I can't imagine trusting you again um so Let me say one thing, Neil. Please, yeah. You know, so I agree with you. We don't have to beat a dead horse. People know how difficult this can be. And I I totally agree with you. But I do want to say something that there are, um, that there is a lot of thought these days to the fact that because infidelity is so rampant, that perhaps Americans should adopt a less parochial view about cheating um, and, and look at other cultures, perhaps European cultures, who are more accepting of this. And so um, one of the things I want to say about that is that I, I agree that there's benefit in not overreacting and not thinking that it's impossible to restore your marriage after infidelity. But the truth is, from my perspective, and given my being in the trenches with couples who are dealing with this, is that we don't live in those countries, we live here. And while I don't think we should catastrophize things, it's also not helpful, I don't believe, to minimize the impact it has. You're right, not just on the betrayed spouse, but also on the the unfaithful spouse who is wondering, will we ever, ever be able to get past this? Will you ever stop condemning me for the choice that I made? Will you ever stop talking about this affair and the, and, and ha- the impact that it's having on you? So you're right. There is an upheaval, an upheaval in both people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, whether, whether people are, are, trying to be accepting of, okay, this is, this is how things are. Like people always cheat. So, you know, I'm going to just kind of muscle my way through it or to accept it or, um, or maybe they're legitimately, um, trying to incorporate some aspects of polyamory into their, into their marriage. Um, there's, I, I think there is this enculturation that you're speaking to that we have to address, which is the way that our expectations um, help create our reactions to 
the things that happen in our lives. And, and I don't think you can, it's not like you can just identify an expectation or a belief and be like, well, I don't want to believe that anymore. <laughs> like there's, there's some processing that you have to go through, I think, to get there. And on top of that, there are the biological responses. I mean, it's no accident that in the literature on polyamory, one of the biggest topics is jealousy because there are these biochemical things that just happen when you, that, um, that primary bond that you have with your partner has been ruptured. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and there's another, uh, you know, piece to all of this. And, and although I talked about um, how this wreaks havoc in both spouses' lives, um, I, I want to, in a sense, you know, contradict myself a little bit here. Um, you know, one of the common patterns that I've seen in working with couples who have uh, just discovered that there's that the affair is out in the open is that for Many people who have been um, unfaithful for months or sometimes years, that although there has been a, a need that's been fulfilled with this affair, so many unfaithful spouses tell me that despite what their betrayed spouse thinks, that this hasn't exactly been a bowl of cherries all the way through, so to speak, that it is actually... Um, very challenging for a lot of people to be living in a life that is duplicitous with the, the lying to their spouse, with living two separate lives. And there's often a lot of guilt that goes along with that, even if they're engaged in that relationship, you know, for a relatively long pe period of time. And so sometimes when the affair finally comes out in the open, Believe it or not, the unfaithful spouse feels that they're finally, they're relieved actually. They're finally stepping into the light. That now, as difficult as this is going to be, I am going to um, change my life I'm and I feel better about myself and I'm not lying any longer to my spouse. So they're feeling better about things. And at the very same time, their spouse, the betrayed partner, is oftentimes at the lowest point in their lives. And so it's two very separate journeys. And, you know, part of the skill of, of, of a good therapist is to understand that people are often in very different places, but they still need to collaborate. And over time, the goal is that their paths will eventually merge. It's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And especially when they're coming from those, from those really different places. Um, just because you've mentioned it, I, I want to also let listeners know that you mentioned before the, sh the, before we started talking that your book, Divorce Busting and Divorce Remedy, that those are often used as textbooks in graduate courses for therapists and counselors. And that, you were viewing healing from infidelity not only as a, a guidebook for people going through infidelity, but also as a reference for um, for therapists who you know because it's expanding on that particular aspect of your work and and how to uh, apply solution focused therapy to that particular topic of infidelity. Exactly. I mean, you know, my writing style is as if I'm speaking to 
the person reading the book. And so, you know, as a therapist reading the book, you feel as if you're my co-therapist listening in on a session. So um, I, I, I agree with you that it is very helpful. So let's dive in. And the question that popped into my head when you were talking about the um, the process that the unfaithful partner might be going through and the, the pain of living, uh, you know, double lives and and the relief that can come along with finally coming clean. Um, and by the way, I was struck with um, how that ties into what we were talking about before, where it's like the weight of the worry that once you do come clean, that things that your partner may never want to connect with you again. Obviously, that would be one of the things that keeps someone silent. Um, and we, we talked about this a little bit in the episode that we did with uh, Ellen Bader and Peter Pearson around creating a, a culture in your relationship that supports truth telling as hard as the truth can sometimes be. Um, I'm wondering though, now for the, for the, um, we're, I'm using, I'm choosing these terms somewhat arbitrarily, but for the betrayed partner, um, who is wondering like, oh my God, like how can I ever believe anything? Like you told me, you told me this, I believe this, and now you're telling me this. And so they have this feeling of the whole ground underneath them shifting and their, their reality being totally not what they thought it was. But, but it contains this conundrum of like, well, how do I know that I could ever trust you again? How do I know you're telling me the truth now? So do you have thoughts on how what like what that process looks like of getting back to level ground or secure ground with your partner where you could trust them or where you could say okay what you told me back then about how that person was better in bed than me or whatever it was that actually you know that's not something that I should keep going back to I should like be focused here present and future with you now right right well so the first thing I want to say is that I, this whole process of healing happens in stages. You know, so first, the first stage is the, what I call the crisis period. Um, and that really deals with, you know, the information just got out. And then how do you begin to deal with some of the questions that you're raising, Neil? And I have very specific advice about that, which I'm going to share with you. But I also want to say, then there is uh, the second stage, I, I call it like when you're reinventing or rebuilding your relationship and you're really asking yourself, where do we want to go from here? How do we want to um, create our relationship in, in a new and a better and stronger way? And then, of course, the third stage is how do you maintain those changes over time? But in regards to the crisis period that you're referring to, um, there are a couple of things. One is most betrayed spouses, for many reasons, have an intense curiosity about what happened, why it happened, where it happened, with whom it happened. Now, not everybody does, but most do. And um, it's been my experience that if someone has um, the curiosity and wanting to sort of connect the dots and make sense of their lives, um, then they need to be able to ask those questions. And 
In regards to what you were referring to, Neil, this is an opportunity for the unfaithful spouse to, you know, gather up the courage to share the truth about what's happened. And one of the things that I do is to encourage the unfaithful spouse to, in a sense, tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, um, because... I, I really wish I had a dollar for each time a betrayed spouse has told me that when information that they're receiving from the unfaithful partner um, isn't the whole truth and, and in contrast to that leaks out over time. In other words, they're told something immediately and then two weeks later there's more information and then a week later there's you know co- conflicting information all betrayed spouses have told me that it feels re-traumatizing, that what they're trying to do is to say to themselves, okay, now I want to trust you. Now I want to believe what you're saying to me. And now you're going to tell me the truth. And when it isn't the truth and when there's more information, you know, even though I'm a psychotic optimist in helping people make changes, I have to tell you that it becomes sometimes an almost insurmountable challenge to rebuild trust when this information isn't complete. So I am, you know, as encouraging as I can possibly be um, that this, it's again, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. It's just absolutely positively important. Now, I, you know, I know that you're probably thinking and so are your listeners You know, in terms of the betrayed spouse asking questions, isn't it possible for that person to ask so many questions that it creates problems of having images they didn't have or thoughts they didn't have or flashbacks that they didn't have prior to asking those questions? And I think that's a really great question. Um, So what I have done with folks who have been betrayed is after they've asked questions, whether they've done it with me present or whether they've done it at home without me present, I ask the betrayed spouse, when you asked those questions, when you got that information, was that helpful to you? And some people say, you know what, it was incredibly helpful because the thoughts, the fears that I had in my head, were much worse than the truth itself. That's one thing they say. Sometimes they say, um, you know, what was so helpful about my spouse being willing to share that with me was that for the first time, I feel like we're dealing with this as a team. I've had suspicions. They've been denied. And finally, I feel like we're doing this together. So in that case, I would say asking questions, getting those answers, really is um, a very productive thing for that particular person to do. Conversely, I've had other people say to me, you know what, at first I thought it would be helpful, but now, you know, every time we're together, I'm, I'm thinking about, you know, that other woman, or I'm thinking about how that other uh, man was a better lover than me, and I have pictures in my head that I didn't have before. With this person, I would handle it completely differently, and I would say, you know, this is not helpful for you. And yet in the weeks ahead, I will almost guarantee you that you will feel tempted to ask questions. 
So when you feel tempted, my question to you is what are you going to do to resist the temptation to ask questions because you know it's going to be hurtful rather than helpful. And the thing that I'm looking for when I ask that question, what are you going to do to resist the temptation, is actually a concrete list of behaviors that that person or actions that person can engage in to distract themselves. For example, um, if I feel tempted to ask questions, I'll call a friend and talk to my friend instead. I'll go for a walk. I'll meditate. I'll pray. I'll take my dog for a walk. I'll go play my guitar. Whatever it might be, you should really have a backup plan because you know that implementing that plan rather than asking questions will be helpful. That makes me wonder if you have any thoughts at what the core needs are that often would drive someone to ask those questions, particularly um, if it's you know, quote unquote, not helpful, um, why would they still feel that in that insatiable curiosity? And the reason I'm asking is because it seems like if you could tie those uh, alternate behaviors to also fulfilling those needs, then that would give you a good shot at, at um, you know, alleviating the, the desire even more. So you're asking me, why do people feel that incredible urge, even though they know it's not going to be helpful to them? Is that basically what yeah. you're asking me? Yeah. You know, for so many of these people, their spouses have been MIA, missing in action. They're not where they say they're going to be. Um, they're getting off their, uh, their laptops quickly when their spouse walks in the room. Um, they're silencing their phones when texts come in. And so many people sense on a very deep level that there's something going on. And when it becomes verified that, in fact, there has been something going on, I, th I just think we have a natural desire to connect the dots, to make sense of my life. To You know, I've had people who, when they found out that their spouses were having affairs, they pulled out their old um, calendars and they were going through, you know, looking at the months and the where were they and what trip were they on? And, oh, that's why they weren't there for that call. I just think it's there's a desire to make sense of what's happened. And, you know, perhaps it's, you know, gaining some control back in your life. Um, I, I think it's pretty fundamental, but it doesn't always serve us. So I guess what I'm saying here. You know, regardless of the reason for wanting to engage in this behavior, if it isn't helpful, you have to come up with a strategy to distract yourself. It's as simple as that. But again, for many people, it is. And I should also say that um, the, generally speaking, the people who I've worked with, the question period is, is especially intense right after the discovery. Many couples have what I call marathon discussions that go on till the wee hours of the morning. Um, this tends to subside over time. And I want to say this because I think it's really important that what I think leads to hopelessness is the terrible feelings that both spouses have during that crisis period leads people to believing that they're never going to be feeling anything other than what they're feeling at the moment.
And what I can tell most people is that it simply isn't true, that over time, again, doing the work, allowing time to pass, allowing the natural process of healing to take place, um, people do end up having fewer questions, do end up feeling more themselves and eventually putting the past in the past. But this, in, during this crisis period, it's important for the betrayed spouse to be able to ask those questions. And by the way, it's not just asking those questions. It's also being able to talk about the intense feelings that they're having with their spouse. In other words, whether it's anger, rage, hurt, disappointment, disillusionment, sadness, whatever those feelings are, there, there must be a willingness on the part of the unfaithful spouse to hear about those feelings, to hear the questions without defensiveness. I know this is like a gargantuan task, um, but that's what needs to happen um, in order for the healing to occur. But I also say that when the betrayed spouse asks these questions and the unfaithful spouse is doing the work and answering them, then it's not fair for the betrayed spouse to, in a sense, nail their partner for the answers that they're hearing. And that happens a lot. It's understandable. But let's face it, it's not easy for the unfaithful spouse to come forth with this information. And and if they're, um, they're accessing the courage to do that, it's also the job of the betrayed spouse to be appreciative and say, I know this is hard. And I appreciate that you're sharing this with me. And this is really hard to hear. So, you know, especially if the betrayed spouse wants their partner to be honest, when they're honest, if they're punishing them by giving them such a hard time, it doesn't encourage the honesty. So it's, it's a two-person job here as they're having these very difficult conversations. It makes me wonder if you have suggestions about the overall container for having those conversations, because I'm imagining that that guiding it, I mean, it would be great if, you know, from the beginning, um, the partners sat down and said, okay, we're in this, we're going to get through this infidelity thing. Um, like, I'm, I need to hear all the truth. I need you to give me a, like, that would be great, right? But... All too often, um, both partners to different degrees are probably also in the questioning of like, you know, can this work? Can I even be in this? They're, they're struggling with that hopelessness. So do you have thoughts on how to hold that space of like, yes, you're, you're in the big questions and yet you need some level of commitment to the process? to be able to show up in that way with your partner where you can uh, deliver the, tr- the truth um, kindly and where you can receive the truth um, appreciatively as much as it hurts and, and as much as it uh, tempers those other questions, the big questions about whether you're going to stay or not. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, th- that's a great question, Neil. And I guess the one There's two things I want to say. One is that, you know, and this is going to sound like, you know, therapy, communication skills 101, but it really helps when the betrayed 
spouse is expressing all those intense emotions that they really use what therapists refer to as I messages, you know, talking about how you feel, you know, this, this, this hurts me so much. Um, I can't believe this is happening in my life. I am so angry, you know, starting your sentences with I rather than uh, making blaming derogatory statements or actually name calling, which, by the way, a lot of what I'm doing when I'm working with couples who are, you know, very heated um, is it's sort of uh, traffic, con- emotional traffic control. You know, it's exactly. like I, I don't I don't allow when they're doing it in my presence um, and I, I don't allow people to be hurtful to one another. I certainly allow the expression of anger. But I don't allow name calling and I don't allow um, really um, soul damaging statements to be made. Now, clearly, um, this is very challenging in the very beginning. And if people are having a hard time, you know, plowing through these conversations, I'm, I'm really urging them to get professional help. Um, to help them sort through this, because sometimes it requires a third person to be able to um, help the betrayed spouse say it in such a way that it's not hurtful, and to help the unfaithful spouse to hear it without being defensive. And by the way, very often, um, I think betrayed spouses have difficulty hearing and responding in compassionate and empathetic ways, not because they aren't those things, because very often I have very loving, caring people who want to heal the marriage. But one of the things that happens to um, unfaithful spouses when they're being attacked, and sometimes not even when they're being attacked, is they can go into a very dark place themselves of shame because now they're finally dealing with this and they feel, um, they feel guilt, they feel shame and it's hard for them to be present for their spouse when they're going inside themselves feeling like they're a bad person. So the first thing I want to say is this, most of the people that I work with who have had affairs are not bad people. They may have made marriage decisions that are not marriage friendly, but they're not bad people. Typically, they're very good people. And in, it, as they go inward and they're just ruminating about what bad people they are, they're, they're, it's not helping them and it's certainly not helping their spouse. And so I sometimes um, have to spend some extra time alone working with the betray I'm sorry, the unfaithful spouse to help them recognize that they're not bad people, that it really is incumbent upon them to be present in the moment with their spouse, no matter how difficult it may be, because number one, it will help their spouse, but number two, it will actually help them feel better about themselves, to know what an incredibly important part they are to the healing process. Yeah. 
Yeah. And the skills of like recognizing in those conversations when you are, when you're getting triggered and you're going offline and, and just being able to, to see that that's happening for you and to bring yourself back into balance and not let it escalate either into an argument or into shutting down emotionally seem like those would be really important skills in, in particularly in those conversations. Exactly. You know, and one of the challenges here, I think, is that in the end, and again, this is, you know, stages two and three, what really needs to happen for both spouses is to feel empathy and compassion. And in in those early stages, because the emotions are so raw, it's, it's difficult to get to that. You know, it's really, um, that's one of the big challenges is how how can I understand, as difficult as this is for me, what my spouse might be going through or feeling? And, you know, for example, and again, I'm jumping ahead of myself, um, while I encourage betrayed spouses in this early stage to, you know, talk about the affair as much as they need to to get through it, as the healing occurs, um, one of the things that I help betrayed spouses do is to find other outlets um, for maybe talking about what happened other than their spouse because there comes a time later on in this healing process where the, especially if the unfaithful spouse has been working overtime and being a good person and being reliable and rebuilding trust, that hearing about it over and over and over again becomes hurtful. And so, you know, again, but this just, this is an example of what you do during stage one is real different than what you do in later stages in the healing process. Right. And I think even in stage one, you suggest putting some limits around um, like when you're talking about it or at least creating time that, we're like talking about the affair might be off limits so exactly. that so that you have some respite um, in exactly. between. You know, it's interesting when couples come to me very often, the juncture that they're at is they've tried to get things back on track themselves. And and for maybe a few weeks or sometimes even longer than that, things seem to be going OK. And then all of a sudden. And by the way, this is characteristic of the healing process. It is not, I want to say this twice, it is not a straight line. There are many, many ups and downs through the entire journey. So while they'll piece things back together again for a short period of time, it's easy for the betrayed spouse to get triggered because of ruminating thoughts. So, for example, they're getting along really well. He had an affair, but they're talking openly and honestly about it. They even decide they want to go out for dinner together as a way of beginning to heal their relationship. They go out to dinner and they notice that the waitress's name is Jennifer. And Jennifer happens to be the name of the woman he had an affair with. So dinner doesn't go so well. And neither does the day after or the day after that. And it takes them a while to get things back on track. And they do. But what I can tell you is that when a lot of these couples come to my practice, they're at the point of they've talked about it, things are better, then the unfaithful, I mean, the betrayed spouse feels like they need, he or she needs to talk about it again. 
Um, the unfaithful spouse is willing to do that. But after a while, so often, the unfaithful spouse is thinking, how in the world can we heal if you and we keep talking about what happened? It's like picking a scab over and over again. But the betrayed spouse is thinking, how could you not be willing to talk to me about this when I'm hurting so much? If you're not willing, it shows me that you do not understand what I'm going through and this will never work. And then they both look at me when they state their positions as if to say, okay, what's the verdict? Who's right and who's wrong? And here's the deal, Neil, they're both right. There needs to be a time to talk. And there needs to be a time when there are problem-free interactions between them, a time when they um, focus on other aspects of their lives together, whether it's their family, whether it's some of the strengths in their relationship or the reasons that they got together in the first place. They have to remind themselves about what's good in their relationship intermittently while, the, while they're dealing with this. And one of the things that I often suggest, you know, again, not just days or, you know, weeks after the discovery, but as time moves on, is that they actually set up pre-designated times when they are talking about what happened and having compassionate conversations about it. And during all other times, they make an agreement that they're not going to talk about it. And if the betrayed spouse has these ruminating thoughts, he or she has to remind himself that now's not the time. We, we set aside Tuesday evenings and Thursday evenings for us to talk about it. I'm going to do whatever I can to distract myself so that we can focus on other things. So there really comes a time where there must be a balance yeah, in terms and, of how they are addressing it. And on that topic, um, I I can't remember. I, th I think we may not have spoken about your technique of thought stopping uh, the last time you were on the show. And I'm wondering if you could offer that um, to listeners who are like, okay, but how do I stop when I'm ruminating and it comes up and what do I do in that si situation? Mm -hmm. Well, first I want to preface it by saying I don't tell people to do thought stopping or not think about it early on because it's just not, it's not feasible. It's not right. But as they're going through the process and they want to connect and they want to remain connected, what I want to say is that so often these hurtful thoughts almost have a life of their own and they just surface too much to the betrayed spouse's dismay. And it's at that point, the betrayed spouse will say to me, how do I stop this? I really want to be present. I don't want to go to that space. So I teach them this technique called thought stopping. Now, um, <clears throat> different therapists do it in different ways, but my way is this, is that first I have the person um, get in touch with, I ask them to think about um, a place or a person in their life where they feel safe, where they feel it's kind of their happy place and to really give themselves time to conjure up all the feelings and all the images of what it's like to be either with that person or in that place. And once they feel relaxed, I, I ask them to think about the thought that's been um, plaguing them. And as soon as they do, they become very much aware of the contrast in the two um, you know, physical states, mood states, 
having just been relaxed, now thinking about this um, difficult thought. And as soon as they think about that thought, I ask them to envision a big red stop sign and to immediately force themselves to think about or go back to that safe, happy place. Now, I will tell you, in all honesty, it's not easy to do. I mean, it really isn't easy to do. But with practice, people can. You you can't make choices about these random thoughts that just pop up. But what you can do is make choices of what you're going to focus on. And, you know, I always say what you focus on expands so that with practice, people can choose to go back to a happier, more peaceful place when those thoughts do arise. Yeah, what I love about that technique is that, for one, it gets you really in touch with that that other state, this what it's like to feel peaceful or, mm-hmm. you know, I think also having images that foster feelings of gratitude or joy, like the, like you're really in touch with the, the different way, that different state of being. Mm-hmm. And then um, the stop sign is just so vivid, you know, probably even like paired with saying the word stop um, to yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it's like, you know, I'm, I know that, like, for instance, I've had experiences with clients where they've said, like, oh, I'm like, I feel like so powerless over this thought or this image. And then I'll say, all right, well, picture that image and now, like, put a funny hat on that person. Right. And, you know, and, and you, people start to see, oh, I guess I actually do have a lot of control over my thoughts after they've occurred. So just imagining, like, the big boom, you know, stop sign kind of getting in the way of you, like it's a huge pattern interrupt for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, And, but then they have that resource of like, okay, I've interrupted the pattern, you know, that like kind of destabilizes things. Now, where do I go? Well, you go to that, that happy place where, Mm -hmm. um, and you're really teaching your, your, um, emotional system resiliency, I think through going through that process. You know, absolutely. And I think one of the um, thing that this particular technique highlights is the um, importance of the betrayed spouse, not only relying on the goodwill of the unfaithful spouse to do his or her job to get through this. And there's more to it than what we've discussed so far, but also being able to rely on your own resources to self-soothe, that that's, especially as time moves on in this process, the betrayed spouse has to be able to get themselves back to a comfortable place. It's very empowering to know that no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're thinking, that you can calm yourself down, that you can feel better. And you, not only in terms of doing thought stopping, but having strategies that you're clear will be helpful to you um, for you to, look, a, a lot of these betrayed spouses tell me that they feel like their self-esteem um, and their self-confidence has really taken a hit. And their partner can help them with that, but only up to a point that in the end, it really does require um, one's ability to um, to help oneself. And, uh, you know, I'll talk more about that, but I also wanted to say in terms of what 
the unfaithful spouse needs to do that's really super important in terms of my clinical experience is that they have to be willing to do whatever it takes to make the relationship feel safe. And very often what this entails are actions that are looked upon as being rather extreme. And I will share with you what, you know, my experience has taught me. The, the, the kinds of actions I'm referring to here are things like having your life be an open book, sharing um, email passwords, sharing Facebook passwords, being willing to share text histories or credit card bills or phone bills. And many times when I am clear about this, you know, with, with the unfaithful spouse that this is what needs to happen, the unfaithful spouse will say to me, you know, I feel like my partner is my parent. You know, I feel like I'm incarcerated. This doesn't feel natural. And what I say in response is, this is not the way the two of you will live the rest of your lives. This is a transitional period. You guys are in a crisis mode right now. And sometimes what you have to do to get out of this crisis mode are extreme measures. And um, usually when the unfaithful spouse shows a willingness to have his or her life be an open book, What's, what's more important about that than the information that's gleaned from those investigations is just the willingness to do that, that that in itself is very comforting to the betrayed spouse. So, and, and oftentimes the betrayed spouse will get to a point of saying to me, you know, I appreciate this, this has been helpful, but I don't really want to be you know, a spy anymore. This is not the way I want to live my life. And that's when they go back to living a a more, you know, trustful existence with each other. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I like that, um, both of those things because they're such valuable skills for people to have anyway. So whether it's, the um, betrayed partner feeling like, uh, okay, now I'm finally not a victim to how this other person is making me feel. Like I can see, all right, when I start to feel this way, like now I'm now I know what to do to to not be triggered and to take care of myself and 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 uh, to to get through any kind of adversity. Or for an unfaithful partner to know what's required to create like ironclad safety in a relationship. So it's like, you know, undisputable safety in a relationship. Um, really valuable skills to know whether you're going to stay with this particular partner or ultimately move on. You, you got to know that stuff unless you intend to repeat the same patterns over and over again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So sometimes this takes a little convincing on my part um, because, you know, it's difficult to say here, you know, you can have access to all of my accounts. You know, I, and, and, you know, one of the things for the people who are listening today who are therapists, um, you can hear how directive I am when 
walking couples down this path. And it really flies in the face of the training that I had as a solution-focused therapist, which is to help people access all their own resources and their own solutions. And I do believe that that's a very important part of the process. But I also want to say that when people are going through this intense crisis period, that so often their resources are simply offline. And I want to encourage, you know, therapists who are listening to be willing to be more directive. And in fact, oftentimes when I consult with therapists and they tell me the places they've gotten stuck, I recently had a therapist say to me, one of her clients said to her, you know, we're talking about all of this, but what I really need is a roadmap. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced that so many of these people just are hungry for direction and it really is okay to adopt more of a directive philosophy when people are, when they feel so lost and so confused, they're, they're actually looking to us for that therapeutic North star. Well, um, one nuance of that that I'd love for you to address is as, as a, as a therapist, how would you balance the being directive with staying aligned with your client? Well, that's a great question. And actually, I think the only way you can be directive is if you do stay aligned. In, in other words, no one wants to listen to you if they think you're, you know, not on their team. And so I have found, you know, over the years that I've been doing this, that, you know, what the research has been telling us all along is that the most effective variable in terms of successful therapeutic outcome is the relationship that the therapist establishes with their client. And that entails being compassionate and empathetic and non-judgmental and helping people feel like you really, really do get it. And you're really on their side, both their sides. In fact, I say that I'm on I'm not on either spouse's side. I'm on the marriage's side. The marriage is my client. And people really sense that, that this is ultimately important to me. So that when I make a suggestion, when I push, when I nudge, when I use my sort of my New York uh, background to be a little more directive than I used to be, it's because they know that I care and that I'm going to, again, walk this path with them until we get to the other side. And therefore, they're, they're more than willing to take me up on my strong suggestions. One question that's coming up for me, and I, I know that like whenever betrayal happens to you, it feels like the worst possible thing. Um, so is there a barometer that you could use or that you would suggest for someone who might be listening to this and saying like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but those are other relationships or those are other marriages. Like what my partner did is the worst possible thing. And there's no way that this could ever work. Like how, how could I know one way or another, whether it's like worth being courageous and, and putting in all this work that you're suggesting? You know, so I've been what people refer to as a divorce buster, you know, since the, I'd say, early 90s. 
And what I have found is that it isn't the differences in people's opinions and values and backgrounds. It isn't the nature of the problem or the severity of the problem that ultimately um, divides people and makes them throw in the towel. It's when one or both of those people get gets hopeless. And hopelessness is the real cancer in marriage. And And what I can say to anyone listening is that if they've been trying to get their marriage back on track after there's been betrayal and they're losing hope before they, and I don't, I don't really care what the, the nature of the infidelity was. Um, if, if before they make a decision in terms of their future, and by the way, I always suggest that people not make lifelong decisions while they're in crisis. It's a very bad time to make a choice that they do get help from someone who's qualified, who at least temporarily can hold the hope for them while they're given the tools to see whether their marriage can be saved. And clearly not all marriages, you know, can or even for that matter should be saved, but don't make that decision in the midst of the crisis when you're feeling hopeless, because I think it colors the way you see things unnecessarily. Yeah, that gets at the question that I asked you earlier, I think, too, around how do you hold the uncertainty when you're um, when you're working through, particularly when you're the, in the initial stages? And I think part of it is being able to remind yourself that you're not ma- you're making a decision for today and and maybe that decision helps you get the clarity that you need or. Or come back into balance so that your your compassion and your empathy and your creativity even come back online because they're not online when you're operating in triggered crisis mode. Um, that that's that's part of holding the question is like you're buying yourself time so that you can know um, that you're making the right choice from a place of clarity and not exactly. from a, a place of being heated or being hurt. And and here's the other piece to all of that, Neil. You know, I think sometimes people are so morally offended, understandably, when their spouse strays, and they are hurt so badly that they really feel that the way to deal with that hurt is to get rid of that person, and they will feel better. But here's the truth. The hurt goes with you when you go. And you still need to, you know, have some sort of understanding about how this happened, why this happened. And I think that even if in the end people decide for a variety of reasons that they need to separate or they need to divorce, if they don't do some of this work where they can make sense of their lives and they can do it to some extent amicably together, they're going to be uh, triggered by so many of these issues as they move forward in their lives anyway. So it's not time wasted to do this exploration. It's, it's really, um, it's valuable time, both in terms of, you know, increasing the chances that the marriage and if you have kids, the family can survive but also just in terms of, you know, personal growth, if in the end you decide this isn't the way you want to live the rest of your life. 
Yes, yes. And speaking of time, I want to honor yours as well as, of course, our listeners. And at the same time, there's so much as always. Um, so I want to offer for you listening, just so you know, um, Michelle's book, Healing from Infidelity, uh, it's it's going to be released on January 30th. I'm pretty sure that when you're listening to this, it will be the day after it's released. So it should be available. If for some reason you're hearing this before it's out, you can pre-order. You can also, I think, download the first chapter for free um, from Michelle's website, which is healingfrominfidelity.com. Um, so you can find out more about the book there. I got the, the URL, right, Michelle? Right. You got it right. Okay, yep. good. Um, of course, we'll have all the um, all of the links available for you in the show notes for this episode. We'll have a detailed show guide. You can download that by visiting neilsatin.com slash busting two. And I decided to go with that because your first episode is busting. So we'll just we'll just go with busting two. Um, so the word busting and the number two. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444. Follow the instructions and I will send you a link where you can download the show guide for this episode, which will have all of this information plus all of the links. Um, and so I just wanted to let you know that along with what we've been talking about, there are chapters for both the betrayed partner and the unfaithful partner at each stage of the journey. So in the crisis stage, in the rebuilding stage, and I, I forget the uh, the third stage that you mentioned. I apologize for that. Um, Wait, that's fine. just maintaining the positive changes. Maintaining positive changes. Um, there's also some specialty, specialized chapters on what to do if your partner won't end their affair, or if you are the betray, um, the unfaithful partner, what to do if your, um, partner thinks they don't want to be in the relationship, even though you do. So, so how to handle that, that kind of one sided, I'm in it, but you're not from either perspective, which is so valuable. Um, the last couple things that I would love to touch on if we have another couple minutes, um, one is the question of becoming sexual again with your partner after an affair. And I realize that we're jumping a bit ahead in the process, maybe because some, some couples, they like, they're, they're back at it again. No problem. Um, so I'd love to talk about that. And then I would also love to close with maybe a few of your thoughts on how you keep this either from happening again or from ever happening in the first place. Um, so take it away, Michelle. Maybe we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll start with the, the question of, yeah, when, when the betrayal involved actual, um, sexual infidelity, um, and how and and the thought of being sexual again might be triggering for either partner. Um, and you talk about the various reasons why that might be so in the book. Um, what do you do? Well, first of all, what I want to say, and you know, you and I kind of chuckled about this, that sometimes people have no problem at all. As a matter of fact, I've had a lot of people 
um, almost um, uncomfortably tell me that they've had the best sex that they've had in a really long time. And I recently had a woman say to me, I'm so embarrassed to tell you that, you know, because you would think that, you know, we wouldn't be doing that or I wouldn't be doing that because my husband had an affair. And the truth is many, many people uh, not only jump right into it, but there's Something like, I don't know whether it's sort of like um, reclaiming your territory um, or just really wanting to connect on a very passionate level, sort of makeup sex, um, where people are doing okay and they continue to do okay. Sometimes they do okay and then that fades as they um, are dealing with the issues. But there are many people who the last thing they want to do is touch their spouse you know, when after they're feeling, you know, so hurt. And there are people who have been unfaithful who feel um, uncomfortable as well because of the fact that they've been having sex with somebody else. And so for those folks, what I would say is that, you know, it's important to, you know, break the ice slowly. Um, it, it's, it's really important to talk about uh, the fact that you're beginning to be ready or that you want to um, reconnect. Um, but, you know, one of, one of the reasons I think this is an opportunity, not just a crisis, is that it's been my experience and it's been prob probably pretty mind-boggling, even though it happens a lot, so few people actually talk about what they like or what they don't like about their sexual relationship. Even people who've been married for 20 to 30 years, it's, it's a taboo subject. It's been off limits. And now, because this is, you know, um, it's, it's in the forefront. It's something that they're um, starting in a way, sometimes from scratch. It's a great opportunity to begin to talk about, you know, what turns you on? What are you passionate about? What feels good? How do you like me to initiate sex? I have some people who tell me that they love it when their spouse just sort of starts grabbing them and is, you know, assertive and, you know, almost, um, you know, just really grabbing their leg or grabbing their butt. They really love that. I have other people who tell me that when their spouse does that, it is such a turnoff that they much prefer their spouse saying something like, do you want to fool around or do you want to go upstairs? So knowing what your spouse wants and needs, starting from how do you initiate sex? How do you like to be touched? How do you like to be um, soft? softer, harder, faster, slower, to really have conversations about, do you like more foreplay? Um, do you like it a little bit more experimental? To, to feel okay about expressing what makes you feel sexy and passionate when you are actually being physical with one another. So again, bringing your sexual relationship out of the closet is you know, the best way and by talking about it is, I think, really important for so many people at this juncture. Also, I think that if what happens during those initial stages that the betrayed spouse is getting triggered, it's also important to talk about that. And sometimes to for that person to share what's going on with him or her and for the unfaithful spouse 
to be compassionate and loving and sometimes work through it and continue and other times just say, okay, let's take a break. Um, I'm not ready right now. Let's, let's consider doing this at some other point. But to be able to be transparent about what's going on, I think is really crucial as, as couples are beginning to piece their physical relationship back together again. Yeah. And, um, what you just described requires a lot of presence when you're, when you're having sex or, you know, in, in bed or, you know, on the kitchen table, wherever together, um, to recognize either that you're getting triggered or to see that happening in your partner and being willing to say, Hey, is, you know, something going on, like even in the heat of the moment where you might otherwise like sort of check out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I want to just say one thing about that. Yeah. You know, like, so when a person is getting triggered at the moment when they're being physical, remember that you have two choices. You can decide to kind of, you know, declare a moratorium, talk about feelings, um, put a little pause and what's going on and maybe even stop. Or you can decide this is one of those times I need to pull out that red stop sign. And, you know, go to my safe place and really try to work through this random thought. And sometimes when you push yourself to to think about the stop sign, go to your safe place and allow yourself to get in touch with the the physical arousal, that could be a way of, um, you know, staying in the moment and not allowing those random thoughts to hijack you. Yeah. Yeah. Having some some control over that. Exactly. Um exactly. and I I love too in your book you talk about doing uh sensate focus exercises, um mm-hmm. ways of, you know, taking actual intercourse off the table but still yes. being able to explore your partner and um and reconnect on that level. That I think that's another great way to establish the kind of safety that can lead back to uh, making love again. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can see that you and I need to talk about these other stages again sometime. I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, Michelle, I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. So valuable as always. And um, I'm wondering if in closing you might want to offer like a couple tips. You offer 10 at the end of your book, but what are a couple ways that people can affair proof their relationship? You know, one of the things that I think has been, you know, so important to um, so many of the people that I work with is to make sure that the relationship feels like it's a top priority. And, you know, finding out specifically what that means to your spouse, whether it's, you know, having date nights, spending time together, having meaningful conversation, having regular sex, to really have discussions about what will make you feel like you're the most important thing in my life. And and barring none, I'm including, you know, kids so often because we're so busy in our lives when we actually aren't working, um, when we aren't, you know, sort of running around doing so many activities, we feel like we need to be present for our kids, and we do. But I always tell people that the very best thing you can do for your kids is to make your marriage a number one priority. And so, again, Every spouse has a different definition of of what that means. And to, again, have those dialogues about what will make you feel 
like you're so important to me and then doing it, just absolutely doing that. Yeah. And I, I love that, that another like in impassioned plea to actually define the behaviors. Like what specifically would I be doing that would make you feel that way? Mm -hmm. Um, It helps you get down, get to a path of actually being able to do those things and, and be able to feel that way. Yeah. So for example, you know, just to give you a little personal note here, you know, for me to feel like I'm a real priority in my husband's life, and we've been together for 44 years, long time, um, I know, I know what it is. I know I need to be, you know, we need to be spending time together. We need to have, you know, meaningful conversation. He needs to show that he's interested in what's going on in my daily life. And for my husband, it's not, you know, that's okay. That's fun. He likes that. But for him, he's a guy who's really oriented to, to touch and that our relationship has to be physical on a you know regular basis in order for him to feel like I love him and I prioritize our relationship and that he's important to me. And so if I mistakenly think that if I spend time talking to him, that he's going to feel like, you know, he's my priority. I've got another thing coming because I can do that until the cows come home. And what he's really wanting, even though that might be fun for him, is for us to be cuddling or having sex. So it really is a matter of figuring out, you know, what turns your spouse on and being willing, whether you understand it, agree with it or like it or not, that that becomes a priority to you because it's a priority to your spouse. Mm, Yeah, love it. Well, Michelle Wiener Davis, thank you so much again for being with us today. Um, your book, Healing from Infidelity, I think is going to be so helpful for people who are struggling with that issue and, and also people who just want to know more about what, what leads to it and how to prevent it from happening. Um, so you can pick up Michelle's book, uh, Amazon is a great way, or you can visit uh, healingfrominfidelity.com to find out more and more about Michelle's work and also get um, the first chapter um, as well. Um, Michelle, I hope we can have you on again. Maybe we'll talk about the sex-starved marriage next time and make it, okay. you know, the, the trilogy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the trifecta. Exactly. So, so I just want to say thank you so much for your thoughtful interview. And, you know, it's so clear to me, Neil, that, you know, in the questions that you ask, that you, you so care about the people who are listening. So it's a privilege for me to be talking with you today. Mm, my pleasure. Thank you for saying so. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.